Thank you, team. Man, I love our worship team. <laughs> They're so good, so blessed. Um, welcome again. Uh, those of you who are new, our, our head pastor and wife, uh, Bart and Kathy, are still away on sabbatical this summer, getting uh, refreshed by the Lord. We have just a couple of weeks left in this series on Daniel. We're excited, though, to have them back. And um, if you guys are watching, we're continuing to pray for you. We love you. And uh, excited to have you guys back. Um, we're going to continue in Daniel today, Daniel 6. So go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 6. <clears throat> we're going to pick up right where Gabriel left off last week. If you were not here last week, I highly encourage you to go back and watch last week's sermon on the first half of Daniel 6, The Prayer Life of an Exile. It was fantastic. Um, I mean, it, it's worth taking time to, to go back and watch it or rewatch it. Um, it was so good. But we're going to pick up in the second half of Daniel 6, the very famous story of Daniel in the lion's den. Um, but Daniel 6, we're going to see, was written, at least in part, to, to give hope to those in exile, to give hope to the people in the place of exile in Babylon, because those in exile need hope. They need to know that the situation that they're in, that they're going through, is not the end that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Theologian Jürgen Moltmann said, um, totally without hope, one cannot live. To live without hope is to cease to live. The Bible puts it this way in Proverbs 13, 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And so when you get to a place where you feel like there's no end in sight, that's when your heart begins to despair, begins to grow sick. And, you know, in our, in our house, something, something that we will, Andy and I, my wife and I will say to our, ourselves, to each other, sometimes if we're going through something kind of difficult is, it's not always going to be this way. Um, whether we're uh, going through, like if one of us has been really sick for a while or we're having um, challenges in parenting, can I get an amen? Or um, if we're just kind of struggling emotionally and, and because of just where we are, um, we'll say, you know, it's not always going to be this way. Um, we're going to get through this. And those in the place of exile need to know that hope is coming, that God has not abandoned them. And of course, Daniel, Daniel 6, is written to those literally in the place of exile in Babylon. But I think we're going to see that Daniel 6, this story, this very famous story, is written not just to give hope to those in Babylon, but to give hope to those followers of God, those exiles of God in the place of exile, in Babylon, throughout history. And we live, um, I think that we live in a place in the West that is increasingly going, growing secular. We live in a Babylon of sorts. And I think actually current generations, generations alive, probably understand a little bit more than previous generations that we are exiles. Those of who are, who are seeking to follow Jesus in the way of Jesus, we're seen as the ones who are strange, as outsiders in this society. And we live in a society that is really kind of, there's a shortage of hope. And uh, one writer, a guy by the name of Carver Yu, he was an Asian theologian, um, writing back in the 1980s, so a little bit ago, but um, he said the two things that kind of define modern society is technological optimism and literary pessimism, which I thought was just so fascinating, a way to, way to put it. Technological optimism. Obviously, technology continues to progress on and on with new accomplishments that 
blows our minds, what can be done through technology now, and many good things. But at the same time, you have this literary pessimism that the stories that is often, are often told in the West, whether they're TV shows, movies, novels, books, podcasts, stories, are often filled with despair. And there's often a, a shortage of hope. So you have this technological optimism, literary pessimism going on at the same time. And so many are, are putting their hope in things that is very uncertain. You have people putting their hope in what the next election is going to be, or is the economy going to change and get better, or, or my job, or performance of my favorite athletic team, all things that are uncertain and fleeting. And we're going to see that Daniel is going to, ultimately, I'm going to argue that it's going to point ahead to resurrection hope. And so I'm actually calling, um, calling this sermon Exiles, if I can get, does it, does it sense in the, the uh, clicker here? I don't know. <laughs> For some reason, it, I'm, it's not click. Can you turn it? Um, I don't know why. I don't know. For some reason, I don't have it. So you might have to um, turn with, turn for me. But exiles resurrected is what I'm calling this. So let's um, pick it up in, in uh, Daniel 14. We're going to pick up. Remember the first half of Daniel 6. Just really quick recap. You have Daniel who's by now an old man, and he's in a place of power and authority, really, in Babylon under the rule of, of Darius now, the, the, the Mede king. And you have other rulers who are jealous of him. They seek to take him out, and the only thing they can find is his prayer life. And so they get laws made that will get Daniel in trouble, and that's where we pick it up. He continues to pray. So um, Daniel 14. Oh, I think I might have it. Just, it just vibrated. Then the king, when he heard these words that Daniel had broken the law of not to pray to anyone but him, when he heard these words, he was distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. I highlighted that word because that's going to be a key word in this story. So pay attention to that word as we move along. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, can you go back? They said to the king, know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king established can be changed. Next verse. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid at the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Next verse. Then the king went to his palace, spent the night fasting and praying, and no diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Next verse. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions, and he came near to the den where Daniel was. And cried out in a tone of anguish, the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him 
And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. The king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, their wives, before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. That part of the story is not really a children's story. Um, Keep going. Then the king wrote to all the people's nations and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So I'm going to draw three points from this story. And the first one is this. Deliverance from the lion's den points to resurrection. A helpful way for interpreting Daniel 6 is actually to look a little bit in the next chapter, Daniel 7. So the first six chapters of Daniel is really narrative, it's story. Second half of Daniel, chapters 6 through 12, are really more visions. And in Daniel 7, Daniel sees this vision of these four beasts that are going to represent four kingdoms, as has been a theme already, like in um, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2. But Daniel sees these four beasts representing four kingdoms, and the first beast is a winged lion a lion with wings on him. And the, the winged lion represents the empire of Babylon. And that would have been easily recognizable to those in this time because Babylon was affiliated with the lion. And so a lot of the artwork throughout the empire, you could walk through like the processional way and there would be these, these um, depictions of these winged lions. And the lion was affiliated with, with Babylon. Um, I should have put the, oh, I think I just clicked it. I think I just changed it. All right. The first line was the lion with eagle's wings, and that was, that was Babylon. So here's just an example of, of uh, artwork at the time of, of Babylonian, a Babylonian lion with wings. So that, that was just kind of an affiliation in their minds. And I think it's really interesting that the lion was a depiction of the Babylonian empire because, um, again, Babylon in the Bible is not just the historical empire of Babylon. It represents really the, the kingdoms of man, the kingdoms of the earth. And the lion is, of course, a very majestic creature, very noble, very impressive looking, as the kingdoms of man often are. But the lion is also a very brutal, ruthless creature. Did anybody um, see the story from a couple of weeks back of here, what happened in Birmingham at the Birmingham Zoo? If you didn't... Um, so there was, we have lions at the Birmingham Zoo. There was a male lion and a female lion. The, um, as I understand it, the previous male lion got cancer and died. I guess he was old. And so there was just a, a female lion at the Birmingham Zoo. And so they eventually decided to get another male lion to be her companion. And they bring in this new, I guess, younger male lion. And when he meets her, when they introduce them together, he mauls the female lion and kills her. 
So in that story, Simba didn't marry Nala. He, he murdered her. Um, but so you can go. That was probably really bad. I shouldn't have said that. Um, so you go to the, the Birmingham Zoo. My, my parents took my kids uh, last week, I think. There's one lion there. It's the male lion. You can go see the murderer. Um, so, so you get why the lion is used to depict the nation of Babylon, this empire. And so Daniel's deliverance from the lion's den is really a picture of being delivered, finally, from the pagan empire, from the pagan powers of this age. It's a powerful picture of the exile being rescued and delivered out of the pagan empire. And so also, I want us to, to notice that um, what, what are the lions in? A den. The word for den also means pit in, in the Hebrew language. So a, a lion's den, a lion's pit, it's, it means basically the same thing. Um, you see the word pit twice in verse 23. And, but in the Old Testament, the word pit often refers to death. And uh, so Daniel 6.23, you, you have twice Daniel is taken up out of the den or taken out of the pit. And in the Old Testament, um, as, I, as I said, pit often refers to death. In, in the Old Testament, there's not really this super clear picture throughout, as you kind of read through it, this super clear picture of life after death, okay? Um, of course, death enters the world, enters creation in Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve sin and fall, and death enters as a result of the curse. But throughout the Old Testament, there's not this super clear picture of what happens after death. Death is just seen as a very negative thing. It's not desirable in any way, but there's all these different terms that are used to refer to it. Um, put up an example up here, but several of the terms um, talking about death are, it's sometimes called Sheol, Abaddon, the pit, the grave. Um, so Psalm 88 is kind of a psalm of lament. And it says, my soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. You have put me in the depths of the pit. That is typical Hebrew language. So pit often is affiliated with death in the Old Testament. And so you have these two images um, coming together in the rescue of Daniel from the lion's den. You have one, the image of the, the blameless exile. Verse 22, Daniel says, I was found blameless. So the blameless exile being rescued from the powers of the pagan nation. And you have also this picture of really resurrection being taken out of the pit of what seems like certain and irreversible death taken out of the pit. And those two images are coming together. And notice, remember how I said, um, pay attention to that word deliver, how we saw that happen appear a few times in the story. It appears four times in the story. Verses, I think, 14, 16, 20, and 27. So it starts with the king trying to deliver Daniel. He's seeking to deliver him and rescue him. And then you have the king unable to do that. And so he says, Daniel, may your God, whom you serve, deliver you. And then Daniel goes into the pit, spends the night in the pit of the den of lions. And the king rushes to him the next day and asks, Daniel, was your God, whom you serve continually, able to deliver you? 
And then at the end of the story, when he gives praise and honor to God, the Most High, he says he was able to deliver him. And so there's this, there's this theme of what the king is unable to do, God supernaturally does by delivering Daniel out of the pit, rescuing the exile from the powers of the evil empire and resurrecting from death. That's really the picture of what is going on in this story. And um, you know, as I said, in the Old Testament, there's not this clear picture of life after death really for, for most of it. But one of the first places that you begin to see this concept, this idea of bodily life after death, of resurrection, is actually in the end of Daniel. It's not the only, not the first one, but it's one of the earliest ones. Daniel 12, so at the almost very end of the book of Daniel, Daniel 12, 10, 2, says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, that's a picture of death, shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is going to be quoted by Jesus in Matthew 25. This is not a picture of just kind of this non-bodily, floating in the clouds of, of the sky image. This is a picture of very bodily life after death. You've fallen asleep in death, in, in the dust, and then the creature of dust is resurrected with new life and walks on the dust again. This is a, a verse pointing forward to physical resurrection that's coming. And I think that's why it's also legitimate to see in Daniel 6, the rescue from the lion's den, that it is a picture of resurrection. Daniel's name, you probably remember. What does Daniel's name mean? Anybody? Anybody remember? Daniel's name means God is judge or God is my judge. And we see powerfully here that it is God, not the conspirators, not the rulers, not the laws that get the final word over Daniel's life. God is his judge. And this is this picture of Daniel coming out of the pit is God saying, as your judge, I am judging in your favor, Daniel. You are blameless in my eyes and I am judging for you in your favor, not against you. Resurrection is a picture of God ultimately being the judge who rules in favor of his people. We, uh, we have two kids, Ellie, who's six, and Owen, who is four. And our son, Owen, we gave him the middle name Daniel. He's Owen Daniel Shoup. Primarily, we gave him that name because it's my dad's middle name, Brian Daniel Shoup. And we named my son Owen Daniel Shoup. But also, we gave him that name because we want him to grow up knowing that God is his judge, that God is the one who gets the last word over his life. Not those around him, not his peers, but that God is his judge. And for the people of God, it is not a scary thing that God is your judge. It is a good thing that God is your judge. And resurrection is God's final word of judgment over the believer's life. Um, I think it was last week or the week before, I went and visited uh, Miss Mim, uh, Miriam, who, uh, for those of you who don't know, she's... She's one of the grandmas. She, she is, I think, the grandma 
of fullness. And of course, was married a long time to, to Buddy, who was really like the grandpa of fullness. And she's been moved to a, a, new, a new place. Uh, I think, by the way, that she would love to have other um, visitors from her, her fullness family. But um, I went and visited her at her, at her new place. And um, we talked about how you know, she, she misses Buddy and talked about getting resurrection bodies one day and prayed and but as I was driving back from from being there with her I just I had the thought like if the resurrection's not real the resurrection's not true what do you really say to someone how do you really encourage someone and counsel someone who is honestly is moving closer to death moving toward the end of their journey on earth what do we really have to say to offer them if the resurrection is not true? Tim Keller, who's a longtime pastor in New York City, um, which is, of course, a very skeptical, secular area, um, he would frequently have unbelievers come to his church. And he would you know, talk to them. And uh, he said one of the things that he would frequently say to a non-Christian when they would come to his church is he would say, you should want the resurrection to be true. Regardless of whether or not you believe that it is true, you should want the resurrection to be true. And I think we actually see that even in some of our Hollywood stories. Um, you know, yes, most of the stories that get told are, are stories of despair, but I think we do see depictions of, of resurrection. And um, I'm going to, as Pastor Bart says, I'm not going to recommend movies, um, but one of my favorite uh, superhero movies, really trilogies, is actually not the Marvel movies, although I like Marvel, but is actually the, the Dark Knight Batman trilogy directed by Christopher Nolan. And I think I figured it out in lunch um, a while back with Eric Bischoff, so shout out to Eric if he's watching, why I like this trilogy so much. And it's because there's a picture of resurrection that kind of brackets this movie. Um, I don't know if you can tell by the, the picture up here on stage. Oh, I'm having trouble again. Sorry. Okay. Um, so in the, at the first movie, one of the very first scenes is you have childhood Bruce Wayne running and he falls into a well. And there's bats down there and that's kind of how the, the story starts. And then he gets lifted out of the well and of course, there's that famous line, why do we fall, Bruce, so we can pick ourselves back up? But at the end of the trilogy, or kind of at the climax of the last movie in the trilogy, the adult Bruce Wayne, who's now Batman, he gets defeated, in a sense, and gets put in this pit that no one is supposed to be able to get out of, but he eventually, spoiler alert, gets out of the pit <laughs> and goes and defeats the enemy as Batman and and rescues those who are in peril. So it's, it's very much a picture of resurrection. So resurrection is kind of bookending this Dark Knight trilogy. And I think that, I think that even in our, our secular Hollywood stories, there's this desire that death not be the end. That, that the brokenness of this current age, the sickness, the disease, not be the last word. That there be another word after that. And I mean, you see that in stories like Lord of the Rings, Gandalf, um, Harry and Harry Potter. You, you see this, this image of resurrection. So Daniel's deliverance from the den points ahead to resurrection. But 
I think also, I think we see that Daniel's story points ahead to Jesus. That the story of Daniel in Daniel 6 points to Jesus. I'm going to put up just six details about the end of Jesus's life and see if these don't sound a little bit familiar from the story that we just read and looked at in Daniel 6. Jesus is a victim of conspiracy by those who are jealous of him. Jesus's enemies manipulate higher authorities in executing him. Jesus is arrested at his customary place of prayer. Jesus has no fault found in him, but the law dictates that he be executed. Jesus is placed in the ground under a sealed stone with the seal of the ruler. And Jesus is not metaphorically, but literally killed. And at the break of day, at sunrise, he is discovered alive. I think the story of Daniel is pointing forward to the greater Daniel, to Jesus. And this is how Jesus himself would have wanted this story to ultimately be read. Jesus says in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures and it is they that bear witness about me. On the road of Emmaus, Luke 24, when he's talking and walking with the disciples, he interprets, he opens their eyes to the scriptures and interprets everything in the scriptures, the Old Testament that points to him. The New Testament writers were frequently looking for how do the Old Testament stories point to and climax in Jesus. And there's a long history and tradition in the church of people looking in the Old Testament and seeing stories point to Jesus. As Pastor Bart has said over and over again, Jesus is the interpretive key that unlocks the Bible. It all points to Jesus. Jesus is the greater Daniel. But there's more going on here, I think, than just a clever literary parallel. If Jesus is the greater Daniel, then he doesn't just get resurrected himself. His resurrection seals and guarantees our resurrection. That's what the gospel teaches, right? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, but the, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each to his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Jesus' resurrection seals and guarantees our resurrection. He is the ultimate Daniel, the ultimate example that God is our judge who speaks that word of favor, of approval over our life. Resurrection is coming. And in, in, the, in the Bible, death is not just seen as kind of like this event that happens at the end of your life. It's not just, you know, something that happens to everybody. Death is actually pictured and seen as an enemy, an enemy that doesn't belong. It's this alien intruder, this presence that has infiltrated and intruded God's good creation. And we try as best we can to avoid death, to delay death. We don't really like talking about death. Or we kind of in some strange way, we sort of romanticize death, which is, by the way, a very pagan idea, not an Old Testament idea to see death as kind of this beautiful passing. Death in the Bible is depicted as an enemy, a deadly enemy, which means on the cross, Jesus goes to war 
on behalf of his people, on behalf of the exiles. He takes death's best blow and defeats him. And now I know we still taste death. Obviously, it's, it's all around us. Um, I've told this example before, but it's been a while. Uh, when I was, a, I guess, a teenager, we, we had a dog, and one of my chores was to, I usually was the one that took our dog for a walk at night. And the place where we lived at the time, there were copperhead snakes that lived in our neighborhood. And uh, occasionally you'd see one like on our driveway or on the street. And uh, sometimes they were kind of babies, which I think are even more poisonous, are the, the young ones. And there was a couple of times where like my dog almost stepped on it and I would kind of jerk him back at the last minute. But you know, when, if, if I saw a snake, um, you know, I want to be like Jesus, right? So I wanted to crush that snake. And so I would get a shovel and I would... I would, you know, kill the snake, you know, crush the head of the snake. Um, but if you've ever seen a snake that has had its head severed off, what's, what's going on with the snake? Is the snake completely still? Are you going to want to put your finger close to the mouth of the snake? No, the venom is still there, and he's still writhing around. That's a picture in the Bible of death has had its head severed off, but we live in the age where the venom is still there. We still taste death, but the day is coming when the venom will lose its sting. When Jesus returns, we sang about it already. When Jesus returns and we get our resurrection bodies, then will come to pass the saying that Paul says, oh death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? It has been removed. Can we get an amen? amen. So Daniel's deliverance points ahead to resurrection. Daniel's story points ahead to Jesus. But in light of all that, what are we to do? What are we to be? What kind of people are we to be? And resurrection changes how we live now. So many, many things could be said of what kind of people resurrection people are. We are resurrection people. But I'm just going to say two of them. And notice that I've had these in the plural. Um, yes, you are a resurrection individual. That is, for those who are in Christ, who have trusted Christ, you are the blameless exile. God is your judge who's ruling in your favor, and resurrection is certain. It is assured for you. But God has saved a people for his name, and we are resurrection people. So keep that in mind. But resurrection people value the physical body. Maybe you didn't see that coming, but this is absolutely a biblical doctrine. Resurrection people are people who value the physical body. We live in a society that really adheres to um, what has been called personhood theory, which is basically the idea that your body, your physical flesh, is not essentially really you. It's kind of a meat package that fits on you. Um, but it's not really you. And so there's a lot of ramifications for this, if this is indeed true, this personhood theory. Um, if you choose to treat your body as an idol and just kind of flaunt it, that's up to you. Um, if you choose to think of offering your body to others sexually as rather a meaningless act that has no consequences, that's fine. That's up to you because it's not essentially you that's doing it. If you choose to really punish your body through rigorous diet and exercise to kind of conform it to a cultural image of beauty, that's up to you. That's fine. If you choose, 
that your body is wrong and what it says about your identity, you can get it changed because it's not really you. That's the, that's the worldview of our secular. That's the plausibility structure, which is another way of saying just the way that it makes sense. That's the way people think. Um, it's so accepted that people wouldn't even think about the fact that this is what they assume to be true. The biblical view of the physical body would be very, very different. It's no accident that the New Testament letter that has the longest, most detailed teaching on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians, which we just read a verse from, is also a letter that has some very important things to say about what? Our physical bodies. See, in Paul's mind, in the mind of the biblical writers, those two things go together. And I'm going to give just probably the best example, at least one very good example. This is in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So Jesus has been resurrected. We're going to be resurrected. Just a little bit later, he says this. Or do you not know that your body, he's talking about your physical body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So the logic of the New Testament is this. God created your bodies. God has redeemed your bodies, and now he indwells them with his Holy Spirit. God is going to resurrect and redeem, ultimately redeem your bodies one day. Therefore, your body matters. And therefore, what you do in your body matters. That is the picture of the New Testament. So, resurrection says that God values physical bodies that he created. He calls them good. One day, restore them. And so, as resurrection people, we have a high, sacred view of the physical body. We don't view the body as an idol to be flaunted. We don't view it as a curse to be changed so we can fit into a cultural image of beauty. We don't demean it by talking about how bad it is. We take care of it. We treat it well with food and exercise, but we do that from a place of caring for something that is good, not hating something that is bad. We don't view offering our bodies sexually to others as this random meaningless act with no consequences. We view it as a sacred act to be done in a covenant marriage relationship. We don't discard it when we feel like it doesn't match up with what we're feeling inside. We don't get it changed. We agree with what it says about us. We also don't act like the colors of other people's bodies don't exist. We don't try to be colorblind. We rather acknowledge it as part of the good way that God created their bodies. Guys, at the resurrection, there are going to be all kinds of colors in the resurrected bodies represented around the throne room of heaven. We honor and value our bodies as good. We agree with God that they are fearfully and wonderfully made and that we have been bought with a price. And we honor God with our bodies, knowing that one day God will resurrect them and make them new. There's a, a lady by the name of Jess Connolly who wrote a book called Breaking Free from Body Shame. Um, it's really a book for women, but Andy um, read it, loved it, recommended that I read it, so I read it, trying to be a good husband, reading what, what she tells me to read. It was really good. Um, but it's basically a book about the body and having a good biblical view of the body. But she says this. I thought this goes well with the theme of Daniel. God is my judge. You know, God gets the final word over you. He also gets the first word. She said, the first name that was given to my body by God was definitive 
good. I believe he makes good things, and I believe that because he created my body, it is a good creation. I want to do something here for just a a second that a little different. I kind of got this idea from Gabriel. He's had some interactive times with some call and response times during during the sermon. Um, So if you feel comfortable, I'm going to say a few statements of truth. And if you feel comfortable, I want you, I invite you to speak these aloud. This is just agreeing and affirming what God says about our physical bodies. So if you feel comfortable, repeat after me. My body is not trash. My body is not an idol. My body is not meaningless and expendable. My body is good because God is my judge and he says it is good. God values my body by entrusting it as a home for his spirit. And God will one day resurrect my body to be like Jesus' body. Amen. Resurrection people are people who value the physical body. But then second is this. And this is the last point. I'm, again, borrowing from Pastor Bart's playbook of preaching, squeezing two points underneath one. Um, resurrection people are people of hope. Resurrection people are people of hope. Um, there's a guy by the name of Leslie Newbigin who was a British missionary during the 20th century. He um, ministered in India, so in the, the far east for, for many years, kind of the first half of um, the 20th century. And I've really kind of gotten interested in him. I've been reading some of him this summer. Um, Andy likes to say his name is Newbigin. Um, you're reading some Newbigin, um, but Leslie Newbigin is his name. But he... Uh, when he was done as a missionary in India, he kind of came back to the West, to Europe, really, where he was from, and was amazed at how quickly it had become so secular and so godless. And I mean, this is in the 1960s, like, 70s, 80s, where he's seeing these things. And um, one of the things that he would frequently say that he observed is there was this shortage of hope um, that he saw in a secular pluralistic society. And he frequently, he was very interested in kind of his question that he was seeking to answer, that he was raising, was how can there be a missionary encounter between the gospel and the secular West? And that was kind of his passion. That's why I've really kind of gotten interested in him. But one of the things that he talked about was the way for the gospel to be made, to be seen as credible, to be seen as a good, understandable thing in the West is a congregation of people that believe it, that are shaped by it, that, that indwell the gospel, and that the gospel is the plausibility structure, the way that they kind of view the world and view reality. And so he says this. This is kind of a long quote, but I just thought it was so good and appropriate. He says, the gospel offers an understanding of the human situation which makes it possible to be filled with hope which is both eager and patient, even in the most hopeless situations. It is only as we are truly indwelling the gospel story, only as we are so deeply involved in the life of the community, which is shaped by this story, that it becomes our real plausibility structure, that we are able to steadily 
and confidently live in this attitude of eager hope. He goes on to say, almost everything in the plausibility structure, which is the habitation of our society, seems to contradict this Christian hope. No amount of brilliant argument can make it sound reasonable to the inhabitants of the reigning plausibility structure to Babylon. That's why I am suggesting that the only possible hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation which believes it. We, we are the way that God communicates the gospel, that the gospel is seen as good because we live in it, we indwell in it as a people of hope. Resurrection people are people of hope. I'm gonna close with this though. You know, very aware and was just reminded again this week that resurrection is awesome, that that's coming, that that's our, that's our hope and that's our end kind of game that we're, we're headed towards. But that doesn't change the fact that our current situations are still what they are, right? And current situations can often be very, very difficult. I'm gonna go ahead and ask Craig and, and the team come up as I'm kind of closing out. We're gonna have a time of ministry here in a second. I'm kind of leading into it here. But um, stay with me just for a second. Don't, don't watch the people coming up on stage. But um, I was thinking about, you know, I know we've got people in, in this church, in this room, who there's hard situations that are going on right now. Maybe you've been praying for healing for a long time for something, and it just hasn't happened yet. Or really tough relationship or parenting issues. And... It's like, yes, I know that that hope is coming, but it's hard to feel it right now. And I went back, as I was thinking about that, I went back to the story of Daniel. And I, I just thought about for a second that, yes, Daniel was delivered out of the den. That's the part that we all know of the story, but that doesn't change the fact that Daniel still had to spend time in the pit. And he didn't know if or when he was gonna be delivered out of the pit. And that's what it may feel like is, yes, I, I know that I'm going to be brought out of the pit ultimately one day, but I, I feel like I'm still in the pit. And so here's what we're going to do. We don't, normally we have our ministry teams come forward and pray, but on the theme that we've talking about today, Fullness is a, is a church that loves to pray. What I'm going to ask um, here in just a second is if you feel like you're in a sense in the pit still, whatever that might mean. It can mean, you know, something physical that you're still praying for healing for, or something, a relationship struggle, or something emotional, or just you don't know what's next, and you need to know. You need wisdom. Um, I'm going to ask for you to stand up, and I'm going to ask for those around those standing to just intercede and pray for them on their behalf. You know, if God listened to the prayers and fasting of a pagan king, right? Darius prayed all night. If God listened to those, how much more is he going to listen to his blameless exiles, his children? But it, I'm going to say just two things for those who feel like they're still in the pit, so to speak. One, the fact that, you're, that you haven't been destroyed by the lions yet means that you're still here. I can, I can just picture Daniel just in this dark pit. Maybe it's, maybe it's so dark that he can't even see the lions, but he knows, like, they're right there. Maybe he can even feel their breath. And he doesn't know how his story's gonna end, 
but it's like a minute goes by. He's like, I'm still here. And then an hour goes by, I'm still here. The fact that you're still here means that the lions haven't eaten you yet. You're still here. And then two is this, God is with those who are in the pit, right? Daniel says, my God, send an angel to hold the mouths of the lions shut. Whether that angel was the pre-incarnate Jesus, whether that was a literal angel, whether that was just symbolic of his presence, I don't know. But the point is God is with those who are in the pit. He's not distant. He is literally minute by minute holding the mouths of those lions shut. And maybe not bringing you out of the pit yet, but he's holding them shut and he's with you in the pit. And so I'm gonna ask those of you who just feel like you need prayer to stand up now. That's not an, an admission of like failure. That's just an admission. I need help. I need the body. I need the resurrection body to circle around me. So go ahead and stand up right now. We're gonna worship. We're gonna sing about how generous our God is. And for those of you, if there's someone around you standing, I would ask, go, go pray for them. Seek the Lord on their behalf and just spend a few minutes praying and interceding for them. And if you are not praying or being prayed for, just stand up and worship the Lord. Worship him that he is the God who is generous with his presence, that he is with us. So let's spend the next few minutes interceding for each other, worshiping our generous God. Yeah. Mm-hmm.